Hello and welcome to the Flint Catholic Podcast. My name is Father Tony Smila. And I'm Michael Hasso. So today we're talking about the option for the poor. Yes. This is a, I just love this segment, especially here in Flint, because yeah. this is, this is just so relevant to what we do. And yep. to be quite frank, this is part of the reason why I felt called here. Yeah, um, for sure. So yeah, this is, this is a great segment. You know, it's interesting too, just to talk about Flint for a minute, just to see where the city of Flint is now, um, to kind of put that foundation in front of us, you know, Flint was one of the wealthiest cities in America at one point. It always blows my mind yeah. to, to think about that, that Flint was at one point the wealthiest city in America. There's 250,000 people here yeah. in Flint. GM was here and it was just a machine in, yeah. in the literal and figurative sense. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was just going to say. <laughs> and, yeah. and so... We go from Flint being just the model city uh, in America, and then just in a few short decades, it doesn't even take long at all. Now we're here. Now we've got under a hundred thousand people in the in the city, and poverty is just everywhere. GM is totally gone, and yeah. and what happened? Just all of a sudden, blink of an eye, um, the city of Flint completely changes. And now we're trying to just pick up the pieces and figure out, okay, what's what do we do here? How do we yeah. deal with this? So not only do we have this this problem of poverty, but I think there's um, just something with the human psyche here where this city was once great, and, and now we've been kicked in the stomach so many times. We just, all right, what do we do? Yeah. So, so that's I mean that's Flint, um, which is sad. It's unfortunate. What we've seen though recently. I think in the city is is kind of a a resurgence. Um, just this Flint is really trying to um, rebrand itself to 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 do something different now, and I think we're starting to see some real progress, some real um, some some benefits here in Flint, something to to look forward to in Flint. Uh, and so, in the midst of all that, we want to talk about the poor. Yeah, we want to talk about the poor and how we see it here in Flint, but just I mean the poor everywhere, right? Jesus says the poor will always be with you. Yeah, um, and so wherever we are, um, whatever part of our spiritual lives we're in, um, this is something that needs to be a part of our spiritual life. Something we need to talk about and um, needs to be part of who we are and what we do. Yeah, and that actually leads into the title for this episode, which I think bears a little bit of explanation if you haven't yeah. heard of this before. But the option for the poor, what do we mean by that? Yeah. So what this means is that in our own hearts, I guess you might say, we should have we should be giving priority or sort of a preferential treatment to the poor because of their vulnerability. We should be giving special preferential treatment, you might say, to the poor, to those that are more vulnerable. And you really see this in all aspects of the church's teaching. I mean, whether the church is teaching on abortion or poverty or really anything else, there, the church may, makes a conscious effort to provide special um, protection or, or special um, care for those that are most in need. And so that's really what we mean by option for the poor, is the, this sort of preferential treatment, you might say. Um, and this is really seen throughout Scripture. I mean, I I think not too long ago we were talking about Nehemiah and stuff mm -hmm. like that. You know, honestly, when I read the book of Nehemiah, that so reminds me of Flint. Yeah. 
like the walls being rebuilt and yep. Jerusalem needing to be rebuilt. Yeah, um, absolutely. But there's so many, so many more instances of this. For instance, we can look at the book of Leviticus, chapter 19. It says, a portion of the harvest will be set aside for the poor and the stranger. So I, I really recommend reading this because the first time I thought that I ever heard this, it was just like, it just kind of blew my mind when I thought about um, giving to the poor because actually what would happen is, you know, obviously they had a bit of an agrarian society where they were, they were doing a lot of farming and God actually commanded them that they not harvest everything, Yep. that they intentionally leave stuff behind for people that were wandering through the land that were in need of food. That was, that was one of the ways that God commanded them to give, which is so beautiful. Yeah. And I think, I think is really very applicable to us because so often, you know, we want, you know, it's like, I feel like a lot of, um, you know, the financial gurus that we hear today are always about saving every penny and stuff like that. And that's good for sure. Um, but also at times consciously leaving extra behind for that person that might be in need. And so there's various different ways that we can do that. Yeah, it it certainly sets up a principle for us to to work with going forward. Yeah, which is good. Yeah, this is this is not one of the parts of the Old Testament that, um, you know, was just for Jews. Right. This is this is definitely still applicable today. Absolutely. Um, and then we have a few different quotes here as well from, uh, from some documents of the church, especially the USCCB. Um. And what the USCCB has to say about the poor, it says, Persons in extreme necessity are entitled to take what they need from the riches of others. Yeah, that's so... I mean, just look at the words they chose there. Obviously, the USCCB chose their words in this sentence very carefully, right? Extreme necessity are entitled. Those are in extreme necessity. So perhaps maybe at some point then we need to define, okay, what does extreme necessity mean? What does it mean then that they're entitled um, to take what they need from the riches of others? Yeah. We're seeing a lot of conversations in our political world right now about uh, taking from the rich and giving to the poor, um, but that's not really what this is talking yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's really very strong language here, and I think there can be a temptation among some Christians. In fact, I hear, I hear this frequently when um, we talk about the option for the poor in different ways. Some Christians will say, oh, this is just communism. Right. Or just, this is socialism. just dismiss it out of hand because of that. Yeah, That's yeah. That's just not what we're saying No, that is, that is not true. And in fact, there's a very grave danger in yep. saying that, which we'll talk about later. Um, this is not communism at all. In fact, what this is is rather a claim on the dignity of every human person. Yes, so the church is saying, because of the dignity that every person have has, they're entitled, entitled to a certain, you know, equitable sharing right. in the goods of the earth. Yep. And so when it when the church says persons in extreme necessity are entitled to take what they need from the riches of others, they're entitled to take. But the key is what they need, mm-hmm. and only those that are in extreme necessity. Right. So this isn't this isn't like income redistribution that the church is advocating exactly. here. Exactly. This is what this is saying is those that are in extreme need. Yep. Um. So, please just remember that not communism the church is talking about. Correct. In fact, 
I once heard somebody make a very good point is how could the church be advocating communism because the church's teaching came 2,000 years before <laughs> communism? This is true. So, you know, I'll just leave it at that. But the church is not advocating that. Um, and then this comes from uh, Pope Paul VI in his uh, encyclical, A Call to Action. Come on, you got to say the uh, the Latin <laughs> name. Come on, try it. I want to hear it. It's Acto... Octogesima Advenians. <laughs> Octogesima Advenians. Yep. Nice. Okay. Um, <laughs> so he says, quote, The more fortunate should renounce some of their rights so as to place their goods more generously at the service of others. End quote. Ooh. A renouncement of rights. Yeah. Ooh. Americans don't like that. Yeah. No, <laughs> that's for sure. That's what I was just thinking. I was like, oh. Paul VI did not understand Americans for sure. <laughs> but he isn't wrong. Yeah. He is not definitely. wrong. Yeah. So, and I, I really like how these past two quotes really complement each other mm -hmm. because there's a right on the part of, uh, on the part of the poor to take what's needed for them to live based on their dignity. But we also, um, by we, I mean the more fortunate, which is, I think you could probably mm -hmm. say all of America or the vast, vast majority of America. Yeah. We also have a duty to renounce some of our rights. Correct. Um, because we are more fortunate for the sole purpose of giving to others so that they can get by. Yeah. I mean, I think Mother Teresa said it well, where, where she said something to the effect of, you know, will you give up some of your excesses in order that others might simply live yeah yeah i think um what's what's helpful here is and i know a lot of people don't like this language i'm about to say but it's the rights and responsibilities language yeah and and i think i like it because i think it's helpful for me just in my yeah. mind you know with the right comes a responsibility if the poor have the right to uh take what they need then the rich have the responsibility to give from yeah. what they have to them. There's always a, if there's a right, there's a responsibility attached to that. Yeah. And notice too, Paul VI, his language here, where he says the more fortunate should renounce some of their rights. Correct. So he actually says, you know, they have rights too. Yes. Based on their dignity. But he's saying out of love, you should renounce some of those rights. Correct. Not all of them. Correct. You know, the church isn't saying that everyone needs to be poor or, mm -hmm. you know, you can't get to heaven. The church is saying, out of love, renounce some of those rights. Right. Um, and then the next one we have, uh, and this is from, uh, this is also from Paul the Sixth, but he quotes Ambrose. Okay, but you got to say the Latin name. Fine. Okay. <laughs> so it's the document on the development of peoples. It's called uh, Populorum. Progressio. Yeah, perfect. In Latin. <laughs> Very good. So he says, as St. Ambrose put it, quote, you are not making a gift of what is yours to the poor man, but you are giving him back what is his. You have been appropriating things that are meant to be for the common use of everyone. The earth belongs to everyone, not to the rich, end quote. Yeah, this one's my favorite one um, because this one really, I think, just goes out and says... If you're not giving to the poor, you're stealing from them. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Because if you have more than you need, 
well, that belongs to someone who doesn't have what they need. Yeah. And so, yeah, if we're not giving the poor, uh, if we're not giving to the poor, we're stealing from them. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, Oof. that's strong language. It is. So Father Tony will be available for confession, uh, you know, mm-hmm. if ever... If anyone hears this and <laughs> Saturday at yep. 8.30 a.m. at St. John Vianney and Mondays at 6 p.m. at St. Matthew's. Perfect. Boom. <laughs> Snuck it in there. So my question is, are you feeling guilty yet? Oh, yeah. If so, it's time for renewal of the mind. So what does all of this mean for our personal finances? First, if there's nothing else you've learned from this episode, know that your personal finances are not personal at all. What we do with our money affects others, namely our family and the poor. But most importantly, our relationship with God. Did you know that Jesus talks about money more than any other single topic in the gospel? That actually does surprise me. Yeah. Um, that I'd, I'd have to like go through again and like pay attention to that. But that actually does surprise me. Yeah. Well, so I've heard, I haven't actually counted myself, but I have heard this claim from many, many people. But... Here's the thing. If you go through Matthew's gospel, there's tons of references to money. And why might there be? Yeah, Yeah. that makes sense because he was a tax collector. He was a tax collector. So you see a ton of them in Matthew's gospel for sure. Even actually, I'll even call to mind the the language of like redeemer. The word redeemer in the ancient world didn't refer to Jesus in most people's mind. It referred to somebody who redeemed a person who was stuck in debt that they couldn't pay. That's right, the goel. Like a financial debt. <laughs> yep. In Hebrew, yeah. that was called the goel. Yeah. And so so a lot of this language that we have from the gospel today is really a lot of financial language. Um, but when we think about why, why would Jesus talk so much about money, could it be because Jesus knew that money could either be a significant obstacle or opportunity for us to grow in a relationship with him? That is really the key here, relationship. Yeah. When we are stingy with the poor, or our families for that matter, this is really a symptom of a relationship with issue. A lack of trust that God will provide for our material needs. Of course, we believe God can provide for our material needs. After all, what kind of Christians would we be? Yeah. I would actually suggest, too, that it's not just um, a relationship issue with God, but it's a relationship issue with those around us. Yeah. Right? Because we're not—we don't love them enough to, to give of ourselves to them. Yeah. And and so that's where we have to look deeper and say, okay, like, what's going on in my own heart that that keeps me from wanting to, to give to the poor? It keeps me from wanting to— um, you know, if we're walking down the street and we see somebody begging, um, even just to acknowledge their existence, right? There's a yeah. there's a lack of love there. Yeah. Yeah. And and also, and we'll talk about this more in, in just a second, but, you know, giving to the point of faith. Yes. How, how do we give with faith and not, you know, today it's so easy with like, you know, automatic digital payments where you can send your payment to various different good causes automatically every month. And that's great. And it's also a really good way to, uh, to tithe to your church. Yes, for sure. Definitely if, a good way to do If you're that. listening to this, <laughs> please, please do do electronic giving. It would really help your parish out. <laughs> this is true. For sure. <laughs> um, Zing, put that one in there. Yeah, we're, we're, we're just making a little plug for all of your parishes wherever you go. That's right. They would definitely appreciate that. That's right. Um, 
So that's a good way to give, but it can also be um, just a very mechanical, uh, it can sometimes, and not that you can't give in faith when you're doing automatic giving, for sure you can, but it can it can just become more habitual yeah. and not about relationship with God. Right. And so the challenging thing is that is trusting that God is providing for our needs right now in this very moment. We know that God can because, you know, he's God. But is he doing it right now? Now, I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting that God loves us more or less based on our giving. He loves us totally and completely. And by the way, he's not impressed with our giving since it all belongs to him. That's right. Neither am I. (laughs) (laughs) So... (laughs) I love that. <laughs> um, so we'll just take a look at a couple of passages of what Scripture has to say about how to use money. The first one comes from Proverbs. It says, A wise man leaves an inheritance to his children and his children's children. So I really just highlight this to show that this really flies in the face of what a lot of people think that the gospel says. Right. For sure, Jesus talks a lot about poverty and stuff like that. But scripture also says this. It says that a wise man, and by the way, since we're Christians and we have the Holy Spirit, we have wisdom. Mm -hmm. He's saying a wise man leaves an inheritance to his children and his children's children. That's right. Our, if you're if you have a family, your primary vocation is your family. Yeah, you got to support them. You got to take care of them. Yeah, that's obviously number one. Yeah, and and likewise too, this serves a very good purpose because by having an inheritance for your children and your children's children, you're able to elevate them, you know, to a place beyond what they could do themselves. I mean, this is really. I mean, inheritance really kind of gets at the message of the gospel in a spiritual way as well, because we receive an inheritance of God, something we couldn't do for ourselves. Right. And so also like leaving an inheritance is a special way of showing love for your family for generations to come. Mm-hmm. So this is a this is a good thing. This isn't like something that scripture rebukes or anything. This is a very good thing. Um, and then St. Paul says... Whoever doesn't work shouldn't eat. Oh, yeah. Now, I I really include this just as kind of like a balance to what we talked about at the beginning from all these church documents um, and other places of Scripture. Because why does St. Paul say this? Why does he say whoever doesn't work shouldn't eat? Um, and really, it comes back to human dignity. Mm-hmm. So just like how because of human dignity, we should show special preferential treatment to the poor— so too, because of human dignity, the poor have a responsibility to work insofar as they are able. Yeah. I think the key is that, that there is dignity in work. Yeah. Right? There is dignity in work. We all, there, there's a, um, deep down, like there's a, a desire for all of us to work, to accomplish, to um, to build something perhaps, or whatever it is. There is that desire within us to work, and that's because that's how God created us, right? Yep. With that dignity in work, and, and the church really talks about um, finding dignity in work. Now, obviously, your work doesn't I, like become an identity for you, right? Yeah. And 
But I, but I know that, you know, if you've ever been fired from a job or if you've lost your job, especially in this time of COVID, you've lost your job. There's something, a part of you that you've lost and that's yeah. hard. And it's not just hard because of the financial aspect of it, but there's something um, about our human dignity that, that gets, that takes a hit yeah. when we, when we get laid off, when we get fired, when we lose our job. Um, that's because there is dignity in work. And so going back to that rights and responsibilities conversation we were having, you know, there's a right, uh, to, to work and there's a responsibility, uh, for that as well. Um, so yeah, there's human dignity is at the core of all of this. Yeah. And something I'll just add here too, is that I think there's often this like questioning that comes up in a lot of people's hearts when they encounter somebody, um, who's poor living on the streets and they're like, you know, they're probably here because of an alcohol problem or drugs or, you know, whatever, start, start making all sorts of assumptions. Oh yeah. Um, which may or may not be true. I've, true. I've honestly met sure. college educated people who didn't have any sort of substance abuse problems on the streets. Mm-hmm. So that is far from the truth for all of them. Um, but I think the saints give some great advice. I don't remember which saint this was. I want to say it might have been St. Charles Borromeo who had said, basically, if you're in this situation where you're encountering um, a poor person and you're not sure if, you know, if they're telling the truth, he said, I always err on the side of love. That's right. You know, I would I would rather mistakenly give money to somebody who wasn't poor because I gave out of love mm-hmm. than to not give because of the hardness of my heart and the judgments that I made. Correct. And so, you know, if you're in that situation just from a practical perspective, you might say, okay, well, you know, I'm not sure in this situation, but I'm going to give something, maybe not as much as you would have, um, but maybe still give something. I'd still right. encourage that um, just to err on the side of love. And we can always, and I'm sure, I know we've talked about this before, we can always uh, take the example of Peter, right? Sometimes, you know, we can give a little bit and then say, you know what? Let's pray as well. Yeah. Let's, hey, what's your name? You know, we can also give that human dignity as well to them. Definitely. I'm going to give you a little bit, um, but I'm going to pray with you um, because I want you to use this for the right things, the things you say you're going to use it for. Yeah. Um, But even if you don't, I'm going to give you as much as I can anyway. I'm going to give you a dose of the spirit. Yeah, for sure. I love that. Um, And then next we come to the parable of the talents. And this is a really interesting one. Because basically what happens is um, this master, he gives out money to each of these stewards. And what happens is he goes away for a time and then he comes back. And you have the first the first of the stewards who made 10 more talents. A talent is basically here equivalent of a coin. Um, often they'll say like a year's wages. So this is a substantial amount of money. Yeah, not a small thing. Yeah. So somebody who's given 10 talents, it's like saying you were given 10 years wages. So even for a poor person, that's like, that's a really substantial sum of money. Um, and so what happens is, you know, the 10 make 10 more, the, the one with five makes five more, the one with two makes two more, and the one with one buries it. And so what happens here is the master, he congratulates all of them except the one who buried it. Um, and really, 
you know, not to go into the, the whole passage itself, but really the message here is that money's the least thing, but it's a qualifier to handle true riches. Because notice what happens here. He says, to the one who had 10 and made 10 more, well, you've been faithful with the money. So I'm going to give you charge of 10 cities. Yep. I mean, if you really read the gospel, this should blow your mind when you read this passage. Like, oh, I, I gave you this sum of money and you made some more. So now I'm going to give you authority over 10 cities. I mean, today, wouldn't that be like the equivalent of like a county or something? Like you'd have... Oh, more you'd have, than that, for sure. Yeah. Especially if you're talking big cities. No I doubt. mean, this this could be a huge area. This, I mean, this would be like, I don't know, maybe however many cities are in, in the diocese or something. Yeah, for sure. Um, so... But money is is the qualifier in a sense, not not because money is worth so much. Money is actually worth very little in the eyes of God. But it's the qualifier because whoever is faithful with the little things will be entrusted with much more. And so in the same way for us as Christians, it's being faithful with our money. Not only in our giving, but also in, um, you know, things that we already talked about, like leaving an inheritance, um, like, you know, investing and multiplying your money wisely, uh, you know, giving to good causes or to individuals in need. Um, you know, maybe it's even being faithful by, uh, by giving to a neighbor, let's say, that you know is in need or in a in a particular situation, and you bless them with a gift. And so the next passage we're going to talk about is maybe one of the most quoted passages of Scripture regarding money, where Jesus says, money is the root of all evil. That's actually not what he says. Spoiler. What? He doesn't? No. Jesus actually says the love of money is the root of all evil. And so the key here is where is your affection? Yeah. If you're feeling more secure when you have a larger bank account or as it grows, then that might be a sign of a love of money creeping into your life. And so just like the parable of the, of the rich young man where Jesus tells him to give it all away, it's not because the riches are evil, but because Jesus knew where his affections were. So if you think that might be you and you have this love of money, well, what can you do to deal with it? Exactly what Jesus says. Give it away or give some away. And so Jesus is really speaking into that need, into that condition of the heart, because he recognizes where this young man's affections are. And then the final passage that I want to talk about is probably the most important one, the one that you should be most aware of, and this comes from Matthew 25. Jesus says, Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And so, again, I'm not going to go into the whole passage here, but this is clearly identified in the tradition of the church as really 
sort of the final exam, you might say, of life. This is At least that's how I say it to my college students. Matthew 25 is the final exam. Jesus gives us the final exam. He gives us exactly what our final judgment will look like in Matthew 25. And he says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And so know that how we spend our money matters. How we give our money matters. Um, And it, it really is intimately linked to our relationship with God, using our money wisely. And so I want to thank you guys for listening. And next time we're going to we're going to dive into this a little deeper next week as well. But next up, we're going to have uh, an interview with Sister Christina. Welcome back to the Flint Catholic Podcast. My name is Father Tony. And I'm Michael Hasso. So today we're here with Mary Dowsett. Do you want to say hi to our listeners, Mary? Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So Mary is a very special guest and a very big part of how I ended up here in Flint, actually. So Mary used to work on the east side of Flint out of St. Mary's and established um, I guess what we might call the the mission there. Um, and it was, so this is kind of a funny story. I don't know if you remember all of this, Mary, but um, I actually had attended this workshop that the diocese was putting on and I heard Deb Amato mention some, some woman that was working on the east side of Flint, working with the poor and going door to door. And for months prior to that, I had been asking, trying to find out like what's going on in Flint. And nobody seemed to know anything. And then I heard about what you were doing, and I immediately like went up to Deb, and I asked her if I could get connected with you. Do you remember any of this? I do. I remember exchanging emails with you, and then I remember you sharing, you know, this full story with me. Maybe yeah. six months later, after we had gotten to know each other a little bit better as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah definitely. So today we'd just like to talk a little bit about how that all started. You, what you did on the east side, like what's going on there. But first, I'd, I'd like to start with a little bit about your vocation story, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, uh, of course. Um, and I'm assuming by vocation, you know, state of life vocation. So I am married to Jeremy Delsett. And um, I got married in my mid-30s, so a little bit later than many of my peers. Um, and prior to that, I had spent a lot of time living in different places, doing mission work, um, internationally, and then going back to graduate school um, to get my degree in pastoral ministry. And through all that time, um, I had a desire for marriage, but I didn't necessarily know 100% that that's what God was calling me to. Um, so I just tried to be very open. Um, is he calling me to married life or single life? Um, I never really felt a call to religious life, um, as wonderful as a vocation as it is. Um, it wasn't something that was ever on my heart to really even explore. Um, So when I moved back to Michigan, after all my traveling in 2011, I just really continued praying for that. Um, And, you know, it's 
found it difficult to meet people, um, you know, in my peer range and with a similar kind of faith life. Um, so I ended up working at Resurrection School, and um, I had a coworker there um, who I really enjoyed talking with, and we had a lot of water cooler conversations centered around faith and vocation and ministry. Um, and at the time, he was actually dating somebody else, so I didn't, you know, really think much of it. Just nice conversation, nice coworker. Um, and then I moved to Flint in April of 2016, and a few weeks after I moved, he had, you know, stopped dating this other person at that point. Um, and we started dating and then six months later we got married. So, um, we had a very quick engagement period. Um, but we had been friends and kind of known each other and known, um, each other's hearts, I think for much longer, just through our conversation. Um, and so we've been married for about four and a half years and, um, marriage is, you know, it's a wonderful vocation. And, um, what I love is that on this journey of discipleship, you know, having somebody, um, to challenge me and push me and um, help me to get to know the Lord better. Um, and then in turn, doing the same for him and supporting him and kind of his walk of faith and getting to know Christ. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really awesome. That's a beautiful story. Part of um, kind of what brought us together after I moved to Flint was um, one of the things which I can get into in a little bit more detail in a little bit. But I um, was hosting some community dinners, and I had invited Jeremy to come to a couple of those because I knew he was interested in um, the work in Flint. And so, you know, Flint played a very large role also in then bringing us together. Um, so it, I, Flint has played a, a huge part in my life as an individual, in my own spiritual life, and then my, you know, state of life vocation as well. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess on that note, can you talk maybe a little bit about... Um, you know, what brought you to Flint, how, how that all came about? Yes. Yeah. Um, so it actually started long before I got there. Um, I think I mentioned that I, I ended up in Flint in April of 2016, but back in 2013, I had had a conversation with Father Mike Murray, um, just about my own interest in starting a Catholic worker house. Um, and Catholic worker house, um, is one of Dorothy Day's, um, Projects. She started them in New York City in the 1930s. She started these houses of hospitality and the Catholic Worker newspaper. Um, so I um, have always found her kind of life and her story very inspiring. And so I wanted to start a Catholic Worker house in, in the Lansing area or kind of in somewhere within the diocese that would fill a gap or fill a need um, that wasn't being met. So I was sharing this with Father Mike. I don't actually even know how we connected. Um, and at the time, he was telling me a little bit about Bishop Boyer and um, the bishops trying to focus on Flint and um, kind of bring the plight in Flint to light throughout the diocese. Um, so then, you know, six months go by, not, you know, nothing happens, but I run into Father Mike again. We kind of have the same conversation about Flint. And then this happens for about two and a half years where I occasionally run into him and we talk about Flint and what I want to do. Um, and then I was praying to the Lord throughout this time to kind of open a door for me to do ministry um, more in depth than I was doing at the time. And I applied for a job in New Jersey. And I was going to have a second interview on a Friday where I was pretty sure I was going to get offered the job based on our previous conversations. 
Um, and on the day before, on the Thursday before that interview, I got a call from a priest in Flint saying, we want to start a Catholic worker house. We hear you're interested. Will you come work in Flint? And I was just, I mean, this is totally out of the blue. And I'm pretty sure the priest at the time was just kind of checking off a to-do list. Um, they had heard the grapevine that I was 18. Um, they didn't really think this was going to go anywhere. And he had been sitting on this for like a month, just kind of putting it aside. because He didn't really think it was a legitimate phone call. So he just, it wasn't a priority. Um, but I just, I mean, that's how God works the day before, because I would have accepted this job in New Jersey. I did get offered the job the next day, explained the situation to them, you know, about the whole Flint phone call and went to Flint the following Monday to meet with Father Tom and um, several other people kind of in the Flint community at that time and the ministry staff. And a month and a half later, moved to Flint and started working there. So I just, um, the Holy Spirit was definitely at work and had I not gotten that call the day before, I would have ended up in New Jersey, um, which would have greatly impacted my uh, vocation as well to marriage <laughs> um, if I had moved away. Um, yeah. So I, my whole work there started because other people kind of followed through on maybe you know what God was prompting them to do. Yeah, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, <laughs> so then once I got there, you know, I had kind of been commissioned to start this Catholic worker house. Um, but I started out very slowly. I wanted to know, okay, who was there? Who was in Flint? Who was doing what? The water crisis had hit. Um, so St. Mary's was a hub, a distribution site for water. So I kind of spent my days getting to know the volunteers who were passing out water and then kind of seeing and meeting the people who would come through the line. I spent my time in the food pantry that St. Mary's has, um, getting to know those who were running the food pantry, and then also getting to know those who come to the food pantry from the neighborhood. Um, and then I spent a lot of time just meeting parishioners. Um, really, I was an observer for the first couple of months, just learning, um, and then learning about different ministries in Flint as well. Um, so a Catholic worker house, the idea is that you are like a stationary building of some sort where people come to you either for um, it could be a soup kitchen, or there could be programs that are run out of it. But what I kind of quickly learned in Flint was that um, there were other ministries happening. Other um, churches, some a, a couple of Protestant churches had work happening there. Um, so there are two soup kitchens within a couple of blocks of St. Mary's. There was a clothing store. There was a St. Vincent de Paul store, um, you know, run by the Catholic Church there. Um, so I realized that a Catholic worker house probably wasn't what was needed right then. Um, and I kind of felt God was pulling me away from that. Um, and at the time, Father Paul Donnelly, who was a deacon um, back then, and Father Zach maybe were walking the neighborhood um, occasionally. So I joined them and just, we went, knocked on doors, got to know some neighbors and, um, uh, you know, asked if people needed prayer. And then that walking ministry is what really stuck with me and was really strong on my heart. So then I grabbed a couple of deacons in the diocese that I personally knew um, who were family friends, uh, Deacon Dave Ziggy and Deacon Jim Kasterzak, and I got them to come walk the neighborhood with me. And we just started walking constantly, knocking on doors, and we really concentrated our efforts in the blocks that were surrounding St. Mary's specifically, um, very close by. So we just knocked on the same doors over and over again, just letting people know um, you know, the church is there. A lot of people thought St. Mary's had closed. 
because the school had been torn down a couple of years prior to that. And so when the school was torn down, they thought the school had, the church had closed. Um, so we were just letting people know, hey, we're still here. And um, really the idea was to share the love of Christ through our walking and through just getting to know, um, getting to know people's names um, and a little bit about their lives. So from there, um, I planned a deacon day with Deacon Jerry Brennan, um, who was kind of the head deacon at the time. And instead of convocation that year, they wanted to do something in Flint because, um, you know, the bishop had kind of um, made a call to people to work in Flint. So uh, Deacon Jerry and I, we planned this deacon day where deacons throughout the diocese came and grilled hot dogs and um, we put them in groups and they walked the neighborhood and Deacon Mike Martin from Chelsea, Michigan uh, came and he spent a lot of time in adoration that day and he felt the call to come to Flint. So then he and I started walking um, and then Sister Christina and Sister Sarah Marie, two servants of God's love, they kind of heard about this ministry. So they came and they started walking. So now we had several groups just consistently walking between the deacons and the sisters and myself. Um, and we just started getting to know people. Um, and kind of from that walking experience, those initial times out, everything else has kind of stemmed from that. Yeah, yeah, I would totally agree with that. For for instance, that's still happening to this day. I mean, I you know, it's funny you mentioning, you know, the first time going to some of these houses that are so close to St. Mary's, and it's like some of those people that I know that you're talking about, I've seen just in the last couple of weeks because this is still happening, you know, on a yeah. a, a weekly or a couple times a month basis. And that's so beautiful to see yeah, how that's carried on. It, it's wonderful. It's um, And Sister Christina Frey, she is someone that has really kind of, um, she kind of solidified a core walking group of parishioners um, to consistently walk with her. And when I started this, um, there wasn't, I mean, there was the deacons and the sisters and I, but there really weren't any parishioners or other lay Catholics involved. Um, but throughout the walking, um, Deacon Mike met a man named Jerry in the neighborhood and Jerry wanted a Bible study. So Deacon Mike started a Bible study. And then um, Deacon Ziggy and Deacon Jim and I, I remember we walked um, and knocked on the same woman's door. I think it took four times. And three of those four times she invited us in and we just sat with her and she shared a bit about her life. And um, we shared that we had this Bible study that was getting started and she came and fast forward, she eventually went through RCIA and is now Catholic and um, just had a kind of a, has a beautiful conversion story. Um, and then uh, throughout the walking in the Bible study, um, we met other women specifically who kind of wanted um, a women's group. So then Sister Christina and Sister Sarah Marie and I started more of a Christian women's Bible study. Um, and we went through um, Bible basics and Alpha. And then it became a time to, you know, eat lunch together and just really supporting these women in their day-to-day -day life. Because um, that's, that's really what was lacking in that neighborhood is just kind of general life support um, for people. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really awesome. I love all of what you were saying there of, you know, accompanying these women and everything like that. So one question that I'd like you to maybe go into a little bit deeper, um, 
you know, this yeah. podcast, we're, we're not only about um, just hopefully getting people connected with what's going on here, but really I'd like to share the lessons as to how people can apply some of these things to where they're at. And one of the things that I loved when you were talking about how you, when you first came to Flint, you spent a lot of time just getting to know people and finding out what was going on and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? One, why did you start that way? And what did what did that look like? Let's say somebody's in a similar position. Do you have any um, maybe advice or lessons that you learned from that? Yeah. Well, what's one story that always stuck with me, um, unrelated to Flint, is I had heard a story about an organization that sent a bunch of sewing machines um, I can't remember, but to a South American country. And the idea was to have um, kind of be a co-op and have women use the sewing machines to sew clothes, to sell them for income. Well, eventually, um, the sewing machines ended up getting sold because the women needed more money and they needed the money now just to you know, support their families. So they sold the machines because that was the fastest and easiest way to get money. And so then the whole project kind of fell through. And I think one of the, the issues was that the organization that sent the machines didn't really know the needs of the community. They thought it was a good idea. And in some cases, that may have worked beautifully in certain communities, but it didn't work for this community. So that story has kind of always stuck with me um, when I approach ministry. Um, you know, I might have a lot of ideas and think my ideas are good, but they might not be what God wants first, and then they may not be what the community needs or wants. So I really tried hard to work against myself and my ideas um, to make sure that I was following the Lord's prompts and listening to those who were right there, who lived there, um, both parishioners and those in the neighborhood. Um, I was new to Flint. It wasn't my territory, not my home. And so I just felt it was so important to just listen and observe and kind of take everything in and learn from those around me, learn from those um, who grew up in Flint and had seen kind of the shift in um, the demographics and the economic situation there. Um, and then learn from those, I mean, many whose lives are in kind of constant crisis and learning about, okay, what, what are their needs? You know, do they need... Um, somebody to drive them to doctor's appointments? Do they need somebody just to listen to them? Do they need help keeping their yard nice? Um, just simple, whatever the simple things were in their lives, um, as opposed to me coming in and saying, hey, I'm going to do this thing that nobody cares about. Um, so I, it's so important to kind of start with that relationship piece. Um, and so that's what I would tell others. If wherever they're at, I mean, it's all about relationships first. Um, getting to know somebody's name. And this can be done in any neighborhood, anywhere. Um, I have a particular, you know, place in my heart for Flint um, in the St. Mary's neighborhood. Um, it's, per, it's kind of a depressed, abandoned neighborhood. Um, but there's a lot of life and spirit in the people when you get to know them and get to know their lives and see, the, see it kind of from the inside out instead of seeing it from the outside in. And I think we're kind of all called to do that wherever we are. Um, you know, we're supposed to um, go and tell the world and spread the good news and evangelize and, and that's needed everywhere. So um, I think sometimes people think they have to have all the answers and have to know what program they're going to do and what it's going to look like. 
Um, but I think it just starts with, you know, a relationship with knocking on a door, saying hi, asking a name, asking if somebody needs prayers. I mean, it was as simple as that. Um, and everything kind of spiraled in a good way from there. Um, and I would love to be able to expand this work to do it kind of more formally and officially, um, you know, in Lansing and Brighton or, you know, throughout the whole diocese. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's definitely a need for that sort of like ministry of encounter, um, I guess you might say, of just, you know, getting to know your neighbor. Um, and that's a really yeah. beautiful thing. The the encounter is for for all people. You know, I think it's, um, I wanted to go to maybe the more, the poorer, the more kind of depressed place, um, the more marginalized um, place. But what I get out of that work I mean, it's probably much greater than what I'm giving. You know, God, he doesn't just work through me to get to the heart of others. He works through me to to get to me, to call me to him and to draw me closer to him. And I think that's something that um, a lot of lay Catholics don't always realize um, because it's like we don't give ourselves the time to get to that point of relationship. Um, you know, there's lots of service at soup kitchens, which is wonderful work and it's needed. Um, but I think it doesn't, it doesn't quite go far enough in terms of the rate relationship building. Um, and I think parishioners then and Catholics um, don't have an avenue to the Lord, to the poor as in-depthly as they do when they're working in more direct relationship um, with, with those who are more economically poor. Um, so this work really is, it's for, for all of us. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I would have to say from my own experience of, you know, being on the east side and knocking on doors and stuff like that. I think that is a very strong temptation for a lot of people that are coming to this area from outside is just like, I'm here to help them. And there's like this tendency to want to like insulate yourself from, you know, from, I guess, being encountered in that same way by the poor and, and by the Lord through, through that. So that's a very beautiful testimony and everything um and then it sounds like prayer was like obviously a really big part of what led you here is there any Mm -hmm. um particular prayer encounters that you can remember for you that influenced either you coming to flint or um what you ended up doing once here yeah um two things jump to mind. The first one is before I got to Flint, I was really um, desired new work. Um, I was um, working as a secretary at Resurrection School in Lansing, and I enjoyed that job. Um, But I I knew it wasn't what the Lord had for me um, for much longer. So I, I had been trying to kind of force my way, I think, into finding work, though. And I remember praying one night and just saying, okay, God, whatever, wherever, um, and just really surrendering um, my life to him and saying, you know, I had been trying to have conversations and maybe force my ideas um, into the world and, and trying to make them happen in a way that God didn't want. So it wasn't working. And it's when I surrendered in that prayer, just saying, okay, I will do whatever you want, wherever you want me to go. Um, and that's when I had found this job in New Jersey and then eventually got that phone call to go to Flint. And the job in Flint for me, I mean, was my heart. It was, I couldn't have put it down on paper better myself. It's, 
I mean, God knew exactly what my heart desired better than I did. Um, so that, that prayer was very instrumental. And then um, it was actually Father Mike Murray who suggested to me in a conversation, you know, he said, spend, you know, 30 minutes with the Lord every day. And I did that. I started just about every morning, um, you know, with maybe a few exceptions um, in adoration, just saying, Lord, you know, I'm yours today. What do you want me to do today? What is your will for today? And I would often go into adoration with a to-do list in my mind of all the things that I thought I should get done that day. And there were so many days where not one thing got done on that list. And it didn't matter because God had put before me the person who had a need that day that I didn't know was going to walk into the St. Mary's office. Um, or we'd be out walking kind of unexpectedly because it was a beautiful day. And we were like, you know, let's just go out for an hour. And we would encounter people and pray with people and hear their stories and just um, make connections and further develop the relationships there. So that time in adoration, um, I think, grounded me in my faith and um, remind, was a reminder for me every day that this work is really God's work, not my work, and I'm an instrument. Um, so it was a good reminder to keep me humble in that way. And then also just to know that, like, my agenda doesn't really matter. It's it's what is God's will um, for me and then for the people that I encounter that day. I wanted to know if there was any, like, glory stories, testimonies, anything that um, you remember from your time in Flint that, that was particularly inspiring to you? Yeah, I think I shared um, a little bit briefly about how Deacon Ziggy and Deacon Jim and I had knocked on the same woman's door. Um, I'll call her Lisa. Knocked on Lisa's door four times, and she invited us in. And um, she has um, a pretty horrific story. She had a very, we um, call abusive life. Um, and she was in her 50s when we met her. Um, but just to see the softening of her heart over the years and watching her, like, learn what Christ's love means and watching her go through RCIA and then enter into the church, um, that particular story, I think, is what kind of keeps keeps me going and keeps me motivated to do this work um, because that was a long process. It didn't happen because we met her one time and had one conversation. It happened because we kept going and going and going. Um, and it took time for her to learn, you know, what is, what is this Catholic thing? What does that even mean? Who is Jesus? Um, who is God? How is God working in my life? Um, she had never experienced any of that. Um, so that story, I mean, she just has a beautiful, a beautiful heart. She's a beautiful person. Um, but she didn't know that. So I think, um, being able to bring Christ to her in a very tangible way, um, is very inspiring and, and keeps me going. Um, and then I think, you know, Deacon Mike Martin, he is very skilled um, in terms of just kind of like house repairs and knowing and um, cooling and heating, and he had a whole business. And so he started um, working on some transition homes that we acquired to help families um, in crisis um, who maybe got evicted unfairly. Um, in one case, there was a woman who had a fire in her house, so she ended up in one of the transition homes. Another family we met um, was living in a duplex um, next to some drug addicts, and they just they wanted to get out. And so they are now in one of our other transition homes. Um, so just kind of being able to help people um, 
have a have a place to live and a more peaceful place to live um, is um, I think just another way that the community there has been able to help um, our, the neighbors around St. Mary's. Um, and then there's lots of little things. Um, on the day that the deacons came for their deacon day, um, somewhere in that day it was discovered that one of them had skills in building a wheelchair ramp. And we had met a lady with a son in a wheelchair and they needed a wheelchair ramp. So then this deacon coordinated um, the building of a ramp for her house. Um, so just seeing all the little ways that people's gifts can be used um, has really been um, very inspiring. And I think that's um, the other half of this work is not just us going out to the neighborhood, but then also, okay, learning the gifts of the church um, and how do we match those gifts of parishioners with kind of needs in the community. Um, and that happens in little ways just day to day. Yeah, yeah, I really love that because it, I really do see it happen often. You know, I feel like that's something that happens really well at St. Mary's in particular is that there, there's just like this real focus on, on bringing people's gifts to meet needs. And I think that you had a big part in influencing that. And yeah, it, it really is beautiful to see and to hear that story. And this is one of the reasons why I love sharing with people about what's going on at St. Mary's, because there's just so much fruit that I think a lot of Catholics probably can't even imagine, because it's just, it's a world that's so far removed from where the average American is today. Um, but there's really, you know, countless stories like the ones that you just told. And yeah, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, yeah, and I think people... You know, when people see, um, people want to see results and kind of big things um, and things that are sometimes very tangible, like a wheelchair ramp is very tangible. Somebody joining the church is very tangible. The transition homes, you know, are tangible. Those are all um, things that can be very easily seen. But um, Sister Rachel from the Servants of God's Love was telling me about a recent time when she was walking in the neighborhood and um she knocked on this woman's door, a house they've been to before, and the woman told her she'd had a really bad day, and this woman said to her, you know, whenever I've had these really bad days, somebody from St. Mary's has always um, shown up to pray with me, and I think that's not something that is seen. It's not really public. It's a very private moment, a prayerful moment, um, but those are the reasons that we keep walking, because people need support in their life and they need to know that they're thought about, cared about, and loved. Um, and so it's those little stories that we really want people to experience um, on both sides, you know, both those in the neighborhood and then those um, lay Catholics who are, or um, religious who are going out to, to walk and pray. Yeah, and I think the important thing that you pointed out there, too, is the consistency. It's like the, the people uh, that help out at St. Mary's in various ways. It's like they're there and they're there, you know, every week or every couple of weeks. Um, and they're, mm -hmm. and because of that, they tend to be there when people need them, which is, um, really a beautiful testimony, uh, to what God's doing there. So, yeah. And you were very instrumental in this, Michael, in terms of, um, throughout my time there, um, we had several mission groups come 
high schools or colleges on their spring breaks. And there was a period of time where we were having fairly large groups coming very consistently. Um, and then Lansing Catholic High School, they would come consistently. They'd come maybe four or five times throughout a year doing mission days and walking days. And so we would gather, you know, you were one of them, um, many people who we had identified as kind of walking leaders to lead these groups to the neighborhood. And we would always tell the people coming, you know, you are here for one day maybe, but you are part of a much larger mission that's happening. And every door that's knocked on is part of this consistency that you were just talking about of being a consistent presence in the neighborhood um, representing, you know, St. Mary's Church and the Catholic Church um, and spreading that love of Christ. Yeah, you know, that's funny. You you remind me of one particular story, and I believe this was when you were still at St. Mary's, where a group was, I think it was a group of seniors that came from Lansing Catholic. Um, and I don't, I don't recall this, the student's name or anything, but I remember he was a part of my group, and we ended up praying with um a group of guys that we just literally encountered outside of a store. Um, and, you know, we started talking to them and I just asked, Hey, would you, would you like us to pray for you for, I think it was some healing or something. Um, and they were like, yeah, of course. And I looked over at one of the, one of the students there and I was like, Hey, you want to lead it without, without giving any prompts, of course. <laughs> and and the look on his face was like, oh, crap. <laughs> and, but he did it. And, oh, I actually, I remember what this was for. There was, this guy was blind, and we were actually praying that he would be healed of that. Oh. And, uh, and so this kid was like terrified. And afterwards, we were, we were walking back to St. Mary's, and he was like, that was the first time I ever like prayed out loud with a group before. <laughs> yeah. And so I, awesome. I mean, there is just like, there's really tons of stories like that as well of like, you know, these different mm -hmm. groups that, that you were talking about. And I'm just amazed by how many students, whether high school or college that had these encounters in prayer with others that they just otherwise might not have ever experienced. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, just so many beautiful, beautiful moments of transformation, both for the people that come and for the for the people on the east side. So, yeah, yeah. With all that, Mary, uh, you know, you've kind of mentioned a little bit that, you know, you're you're no longer here in Flint. So I guess what I what the listeners might be wondering is what does ministry mm -hmm. look like for you right now? Yeah, of course. Um, well, I can share that my husband and I, we are we are kind of on mission, I would say, um, living in Dayton, Ohio, as he pursues his PhD in theology. Um, and this came after much prayer. We really felt God was um, calling us here and asking us to do this. Um, and right now, I think God is, um, personally for me, I mean, equipping me for what's next, um, especially during COVID, um, kind of when things initially shut down um, and, you know, nobody was going out anywhere. I spent a lot of time in prayer, um, really have been able to dive into scripture more. So for me, this has really been um, a time of spiritual growth um, personally and just really um, 
learning to be more dependent on God and listen to the little ways he's calling me um, to be on mission kind of at a distance. So um, sometimes that means writing notes and letters to um, particularly the women in the neighborhood um, that I know. And so I've spent a lot of time doing that. Um, phone calls, lots of phone calls to the women there because I can at least still um, check in and we, we've prayed over the phone. Um, and then um, Sister Christina, who is there, she has prayer times. So I will try to set aside, you know, time to pray specifically for Flint, um, go to mass for Flint. So a lot of, you know, I'm in kind of a support intercessor, intercessory role right now. Um, but it has, again, just humbled me and reminded me that, you know, God can work through us um, in all different ways. And um, I think Sister Christina has some beautiful gifts um, that I didn't have. So when she kind of took over um, my role in Flint there, she uh, was able to connect with people and um, bring about new ministries that weren't happening um, through me. So um, it's really been a blessing to see her thrive there and to hear about all the connections that she's made with others. Um, so right now, I, I think God's preparing Jeremy and I for what's next. And we, we hope and we pray that that um, is a future role in the work in Flint or in the diocese um, in mission and ministry. Um, so, yeah, I do hope to get back there and, and work again. Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. So. One, I really love that testimony of how you're still uh, ministering to the people of Flint, even from a distance. And on that note, I was wondering, do you have any any um, suggestions as to how listeners might support the work of St. Mary's, whether, you know, up close or from a distance? Yeah. Um, well, right now, um, I know that Sister Christina is leading... Um, the first Thursday of the month, um, a, Eucharist, a Eucharistic procession, um, or she's organizing it, I'm not sure if she's leading it, but she's organizing a Eucharistic procession on the first Thursday of the month from 2.30 to 3.30, so anybody is welcome to join that. And then every other Thursday, they walk the neighborhood, so she has a group that goes out, anybody can join that. Um, and if somebody isn't quite at the place where they're comfortable walking, um, while others are walking, they have adoration from 2.30 to 3.30 at the church. So people could always come and join for the prayer um, or the walk. And then if there's, you know, a parish group that's just interested in learning more about St. Mary's or the neighborhood um, or can't go on a Thursday at that time, um, you know, Sister Christina can be available to to meet with others and to take them out for, you know, maybe a shorter walk in the neighborhood um mentors for the children in the neighborhood are needed um you know we try to connect um kind of like adopt a family situations where um, parishioners get to know a family especially families with children and then they maybe send birthday cards or christmas cards or just kind of um and this is usually from a distance kind of support that family and check in on them um, as best they can from a distance and let them know that they're kind of consistently thought about and being prayed for. Um, and then Deacon Mike Martin with the transition home, he's always in need of skilled labor, um, roof repair, water heater replacement, basement leaks, anybody who has skills in um, kind of home repair 
um, is always, always a need. Um, and then I think really people, um, and this can be for anywhere. I mean, this is, you know, the church itself, people praying to know what their gifts are and then praying how to use those gifts for others. Um, and if that happens in Flint, that's great. Um, but not everybody's going to be called to do something in Flint. Um, but I think we're all called to be using our gifts for others. And that, so I think really if people are, um, you know, being the living church and using their gifts, um, anywhere is ultimately helps the work of St. Mary's because it's helping the church. Um, and then if people um, just pray, pray for Flint, because um, that can be done from anywhere, any time of day. Yeah, thank you, Mary. I think I think you pretty much covered it all. I, I loved all of that. That was great stuff. And for listeners who might want to get in touch with Sister Christina, you can just reach out to us directly through the website. That's flintcatholic.org. Just message, message the website, and we'll get you connected. So thank you, Mary. Thanks for your time here. Thanks for sharing with yeah. listeners. Thanks. Thanks for having me.